Nige said we're still in our Torah series, uh, looking at the first five books of the Bible, and we've been going now for, well, we've done six weeks, and we're, we're on the, the easy stretch now. We've just got Numbers and Deuteronomy left, uh, so that's going to be a nice, relaxing four more weeks uh, to go. I'm going to do what I've done so far, which is make a mess, and then Nigel will clear it up next week for Numbers, um, and then he's going to get me back with Deuteronomy. We're switching it around so that Nigel doesn't get whatever else in the book. Um, So we're in Numbers today. Now, the people of God are at Mount Sinai still. When did they get there? Can you remember? Ages ago. They got there in our time, like six weeks ago. No, four weeks ago, uh, I think. Uh, So in Exodus 19, they arrived at Mount Sinai, and they've been there from Exodus 19 all the way to the end of Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, and now we pick up with them still there in Numbers. And they've actually just been there for a year. Do you notice in the reading, Nigel said, uh, mentioned the, the, something like the first month of the second year after they come out of uh, Egypt. So they've just been there for a year. But in that time, they've done a lot of things and they've learned a lot. Now, Sinai has basically worked for the people of Israel like kind of spiritual boot camp. So they came out of Egypt, all they'd ever known was slavery, all they'd ever known was oppression, their only picture of power had been negative, their only picture of God really up until a few weeks before that point had been absent, where is he, what's going on? Um, And they had no clue how to live as God's people. So God's intention for them is to live in the land as his people, modelling what his kingdom looks like to the rest of the world. So he's got a lot of work to do. And really, that's what Sinai was all about. It was about teaching the people, here's how to live as my people. And some of the things we've seen so far is that that teaching is incredibly holistic. It covers the spiritual parts of our lives, like worship and faith and what we say or don't say about God and who he is and how to worship him and how to live in his presence. But it also covers the normal aspects of life, like sanitation and death and burial and... um, tax and giving and generosity to the poor and all this kind of, that's my snack coming uh, all this kind of stuff that's so important um, gets covered on Sinai but now we've got this thing where we've got these people who know the information though they're out of Egypt woohoo they know their stuff they've camped at Sinai for a year they're trained in the things of God as it were and now we have to get them to where they can do some work we have to get them to the promised land uh, which sounds easy and turns out to be very very difficult as most of you will know from the book of numbers so numbers is all about getting the people from then, like between Egypt and Canaan. So there's this kind of sense all the way through the book of Numbers where there's this great thing you're not slaves anymore, you're not in Egypt, you're free. Woohoo! On the other hand, through the whole book of Numbers, you're also not there yet. And Numbers exists in this kind of gap between where we were and where we will be. And in a way, I love that. Well, in fact, in many ways, I completely love that. Because that means that numbers is relevant to all our journeys. Because in some senses, this, this is true for all of us. Well, for most of us, certainly. Uh, I don't know if any of you have reached where God wants you to be in your life yet and are completely spiritually mature and functioning fully as a, a man of God, a, a man or woman of God. Uh, I'm not, so hey, yeah. But for most of us, there's a kind of sense that we're not in Egypt. Like God has rescued us, God has done something fundamental in our lives, he's brought us um, into the kind of kingdom of Jesus, he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, there's, there's a sense in which God has done something really awesome and really powerful in their lives and he's taught them some things and they've experienced his presence and probably for most of us in the room we could say, yeah, that's, that's at least to some degree true of us. But on the other hand, they're also not yet where he wants them to get to. Does anyone else in the room feel like they've got a little more, more journeying to do before they reach full maturity in Christ. So we all exist in this wilderness. And that's why uh, the actual name for Numbers is much more helpful. Uh, The Hebrew name for the book of Numbers is Bamidbar. Say Bamidbar. I mean, our Hebrew accents are rubbish, but who cares? So uh, Bamidbar. Bamidbar means in the wilderness. In the wilderness. So uh, that's a much more exciting name than the book of Numbers, isn't it? Uh, It's like This is like Bear Grylls meets Israel. Um, So they're going to journey through the wilderness. But there's an acknowledgement from the beginning that that is our journey too. That in some senses, we exist in this wilderness. And 
the funny thing is, and I've, I think I've mentioned this once before, but the funny thing for me is that the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible is so focused on getting the people of Israel to the land, to function well in the land. But these first five kind of seminal core books in the Bible never get the people to the land. Isn't that funny? These kind of, these, the Torah like, is like the core of Jewish self-understanding, of religious self-understanding. But it never gets them to the land. It leaves them just short. And I don't think that's accidental. It could easily have made it in there. The story could easily have covered the, kind of the start of the invasion uh, of the land of Canaan. It could easily have made it um, into these first five kind of books. But why not? And I think why not is exactly what we've just talked about. I think this is saying to us, listen, sometimes it's not as much about the destination as the journey. And there's an acknowledgement that people who read this text are likely not going to be in the promised land. <laughs> We're likely not going to be Jews living in Canaan. For most of history since this, that's not been the case. Like Jews at peace living in Canaan. But for most of Israel's history and most of the church's history, we can relate to this idea of being a people in the wilderness longing longing for what God has got for us, longing for his kingdom to come more fully, longing for our lives to look more like the life of Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's cool. So we're going to hang with them in the wilderness. Is that all I wanted to say there? It's going to take a lot longer than you want it to. I mean, both this talk and the book of Numbers uh, as a story. (laughs) There's this kind of thing in the book of Numbers where the journey from from where they are in the wilderness of Sinai to invading the land should have taken 11 days. And it says that at the beginning of Deuteronomy. It's actually a reference. The journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir Road takes 11 days. How long did it take them? Can you remember? Now, what we're going to find is that through this book, we're going to get really, really annoyed at the people of Israel. Okay, are you ready? I mean, not like anti-Semitically annoyed at the people of Israel, but really frustrated at these guys who just don't seem to get it over and over and over again. And this journey from what God has called them out of to what God has called them into looks like it shouldn't take very long, but actually takes flipping ages. Does that sound like anyone else's story? (laughs) Like when you become a Christian, you turn to Jesus and you think, Wow, I've, bas- I've nearly got this down already. Like, you know, I, I am nearly very kind and loving and great, and I've nearly got my prayer life sorted. And over and over again through your life, you think, oh my days, am I ever going to get there? Do you know what I mean? Am I ever going to reach that place that God has called me uh, towards? And so what you're supposed to do is to read it, get frustrated at the people, and then realize it's actually talking about you. You're actually the person who makes the same mistakes over and over again, who hears God's voice one day and forgets he exists the next. That's us. That's all of us. And that's all of our stories. Praise the Lord. Okay, let's go. Um, The basic uh, structure of the book, uh, which is quite hard to to see as you read it. So uh, uh, this is kind of iffy, as it were. But this is basically what happens. There's a journey that revolves around three kind of camps where we camp at places in the book of Numbers. The first one, we spend the first nine chapters at Sinai. Yes. Oh, gosh. Sinai. Sinai. Okay, can everyone say Sinai? Okay, when I say it wrong, can you correct me? That's not normally a problem in this church, is it? So, okay, that's great. Sinai. We'll call it what it actually is. Mount Sinai. Sorry? Sinai. Sinai. Yeah, it says a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, So we're spending the first nine chapters at Mount... Very good. And the basic idea there is at the moment we've got a people who know how to live with God in their presence, but they don't know how to move with him. They don't know how to walk with him, how to lift camp, set up. And if you think about it, they've got a lot to move. There's 600,000 men in this camp, plus, uh, I reckon, probably some women and kids. So... That's a lot of people you've got to move from one place around the wilderness together in some kind of logical formation. Then there's also all the stuff about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the altar and all these things that God 
um, commanded the people to make that are incredibly holy. So there's this whole holy presence in the tent thing. How do we move the tent? How do you take down a tent like that, shift it across the wilderness, and put it up in such a way that you haven't in some way killed yourself by touching what's holy or something like that? Or defamed the holy thing. Does that make sense? There's a lot to learn here. So the people have to learn, okay, take it down like this. You carry this. Cover that so they can't see it. Blah, blah, blah. There's actually quite a lot to get organized. Um, and so <laughs> uh, the, the, the phrase, has anyone ever seen a close shave? Wallace and Gromit, the close shave. And you know when they're, they're escaping on the motorbike uh, uh, where all the sheep are in the lorry? Do you remember this scene? And then they kind of get the motorbike up to the back of the lorry and all the sheep pile out onto the motorbike that's the exodus, okay? So the people get free from the lorry onto the motorbike. But then there's this moment where Wallace looks down, he sees this big bundle of sheep, and he says, get yourselves organized down there. Can anyone do it in the Wallace legitimate accent? What is it? Is it a Yorkshire accent? Ruth, can you say, get yourselves organized down there? <laughs> down the ear. Perfect. Perfect. Great. So now we'd learned how to say two things today. Um, uh, so it reminded me of this, this little... Oh, you can't even see it. But they, then they all turn up, turn this perfect, perfect sheep formation uh, stacked up on this motorbike. That's what uh, Numbers 1 to 9 is all about. Uh, really, it's just... If there had already been Wallace and Gromit, they would have just referenced Wallace and Gromit. Um, so the, the journey, then they journey from about chapter 10, verse 11, I think it is. They set off um, and they spend a couple of chapters moving. Then they get to Paran, uh, which is where, is, did I say that right? Uh, there's a place called Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. Uh, I'm just going to say all the words wrong. <laughs> can we... Can we <laughs> Um, uh, but Kadesh Barnea, which is where they send the spies into the wilderness. Do you remember this story? And the spies come back and they are carrying this massive clump of grapes on a pole because it's so big. Uh, but the people don't want to go into the land. And so they have lots of ruckuses and problems in Kadesh Barnea. And then um, from between chapters 19 and chapters 22, there's kind of various different journeying stories where they basically do something that looks a little bit like that. Um, and they spend 40 years, basically most of the 40 years happen in that spot there. So after they leave Kadesh Barnea, they go round and round and round and round the wilderness. And then by about chapter 22, they've reached the plains of Moab, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So they're just on the border of the land. And they're on the border of the land twice. That's the basic journey of the book of Numbers. Are you ready to look at a few specifics? Hey, look, it's only half past. Oh, I do. We've got to make the most of this. Um, this is going to be good. My intention today is to get us to Moab. Is that okay? And then Nigel, because Moab's the most difficult bit of the book. Um, so Nigel will do that next week. So, okay. Uh, go to Numbers 10 again, please. If you have a book, uh, a Bible, or a phone, go to Numbers chapter 10. So they've just celebrated the first Passover, which means it's been a year since they left Egypt. Um, God makes them make some funny trumpets. And then in verse 11 um, of chapter 10, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the covenant. Now this is basically, this is kind of following God 101. When the cloud lifts, they move, and when the cloud settles, they stay. So one of the kind of core lessons early on is how do we follow the presence of God? How do we see what he's doing um, and go with him? Um, and the basic, um, the basic idea is when you see him move, you move. When you see him stop, you stop. Um, and they're, they're surprisingly good at it for the first 11 days. Um, so this, uh, And then it's, it describes them setting off um, in order. Um, the standard of the camp of Judah set out first company by company and over the whole company was Nashon, son of Aminadab, and then we get lots and lots of things and then the tabernacle sets out and there we, there we go. Uh, verse 33, so they set out from the mount of the Lord, Mount Sinai, on three days journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord going before them for three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord being over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he would say, Return, O Lord, of the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Just cool little weird blessings there. I'd not realized that that bit was in the Bible until I read it this week. Very good. Um, now, 
things are going very well, aren't they? Um, And the people of Israel are moving. There's a momentum. There's a kind of freedom. There's a life. There's a we're following God. And it's all uh, looking pretty cool and lovely. Um, How long do you think it's going to be before things go terribly wrong? (laughs) Do you remember when they came out of Egypt? (laughs) And God had rescued them and done all the plagues against the Egyptians and, um, uh, and rescued them by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And I, I can't remember when it was, but it was like a day later or two days later after their journeying through the wilderness. All the people just start to be like, you've brought us out into the desert to kill us. There's no water. There's no nothing. There's no... And it's just, it's meant to be depressing. Like, it's written to be depressing. So let yourself be depressed. That the story goes from the highest possible moment of God's salvation and rescue of this people and everything's looking great and he's given them everything to, oh, good grief. This has all gone horribly wrong, horribly fast. So this is meant to kind of uh, ring, ring bells for us because the last time they sat out on a journey was from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Sinai. Uh, and um, <laughs> and as soon as they set out on that journey, they rebelled against God and things went horribly wrong. It was awful. So now they've had a year's training, right? They've been in the presence of God for a year. They've heard him speak. They've seen him in the cloud. They've had his law given through Moses. They've got the tabernacle. They've got his judgments. They've got a sense of how to live for him. So things are going to be better this time round. So as soon as they set out, uh, chapter 11 now. Um, Now, when the people complained, (laughs) uh (laughs) uh-oh, in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, So as soon as they set out again, even with all the information in their heads and all the equipment of worship, the issue in their heart is still the same. Oh gosh, we've just set off and already things are pretty bad. The people complained to the Lord about their misfortunes. The Lord heard it and his anger was kindled. Then the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. But, but the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord. That often happens. The people complain to Moses, and Moses complains to God. Um, in fact, Moses is going to spend a lot of his time praying in the book of Numbers. It's a good example of good leadership. The people come to him whinging, and Moses just goes poof on the floor, face down, Lord, help, or Lord, give me a different job, or something. But he's, he's very good at turning to the Lord in prayer. Moses prayed and the fire abated. So the place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned against them. Now, this, is <laughs> this becomes a very, very repetitive formula in the book of Numbers. The people are doing okay. The people then complain against God about something. And then God responds, Moses prays, and everything gets okay again. That's kind of the formula. In fact, it happens seven times. Ooh, seven times that the people in some form complain um, in the book of Numbers. Now, seven should be ringing your bells because seven is a massively significant number um, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and so we're going to look uh, just to, just quickly uh, at, oh, we've already done this. Uh, we're going to look just quickly about what these seven complaints say. Now, the first one we just looked at, uh, the people kind of make a general kind of complaint um, against uh, God and about their, comp- uh, their disastrous journey. And that's in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, I hope you can understand my crazy map. Um, oh, I can send you the slide if you like. Um, that's fine. You won't get a very good picture because that's very hard to read anyway. Um, but, uh, so 11 verse 1 is the first complaint, um, and then 11 verse 4, they complain that they don't have... By the way, this is like one verse later. <laughs> now, the people complain. They don't have any food or water, um, and they grumble against Moses, and, it, uh, and that's not good. Um, so that's the second one. The third one um, is uh, just one chapter later. Now, this is still just after we've set out. Like, this is so early on the journey. And they should know better. But Miriam and Aaron, Moses' own brothers, launched kind of a leadership attack against Moses. It's like, come on, you guys. Like, (laughs) 
Don't be silly. Uh, but they, they, they attack Moses as the leader. And God shows by giving Miriam leprosy. Uh, I mean, come on. Um, uh, the, uh, no, I do want Moses to be the leader. <laughs> um, this is kind of conclusive. Um, then four, this kind of central one, uh, is the whole process in 13 and 14 when the spies go to Canaan, come back and reject the call of God to go into the land. And they complain. They say, oh, we could go back to Egypt. And they actually want to kind of kill Moses, get a new captain and go back to Egypt. It's very good. We're going to look at that story in just a minute. Um, And really, don't forget, it's all of your story. It's my story, your story, everyone's story. Uh, Then in 16, uh, verse 1, there's another attack against the leaders of Israel. Only this one comes from some Levites against Aaron. So we've got the the prophet, God's prophet and God's priest, both being um, attacked and coming under attack. And in this case, God also shows what his choice is quite clearly, uh, by the small matter of incinerating 250 of them and burying others alive with their families and kids. We'll come back to that. Um, Or I'll leave it for Nige next week. Um, And then in 20 verse 3, there's another complaint about food and water. And in 21 um, is this final kind of general complaint. Oh, everything's rubbish. We hate the wilderness. We hate this. There's no water. And we hate this stinking manna. They actually say that. Um, It's just really funny. Uh, So then God sends snakes among them that kill them. We'll come back to that as well. Okay. So, do you see that there's a structure here, because I've drawn it for you, uh, that's pointing us to the kind of core problem, the core complaint, the core issue in the book of Numbers that delays them for so long in the wilderness and that God gets so wound up about. So, should we look at that for a bit together? Would you go to chapter 13, please? Chapter 13. So, this is the first major stopping point, um, and we're now in Paran, in the wilderness of Paran, um, uh, or Paran, or... Poran, or uh, I don't know how to say it, Uh, but we're going to get to a place called Kadesh Barnea. The Lord said to Moses in 13 verse 1, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. Each from their ancestral tribes, you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. Now, actually, the Levites don't go, I don't think, but um, Josh uh, Joseph split into two by now. Do you remember Manasseh and Ephraim? Ephraim? Ephraim. So they sent one each, so there's 12 men who go in. Um, and then we get the list of the names, which is very good, but you don't care. Um, and Joshua and Caleb are among them. So they go into the land, and Moses tells them what to, what to look for in verse 17. He said, go up there into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they live in is good or bad, and whether the towns that they live in are unwalled or fortified, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. (laughs) Whether there are trees in it or not. There's probably going to be a tree somewhere, isn't there? It's like quite a high likelihood. Um, Although actually where they were, there were probably no trees in the desert, so I don't know. Uh, Be bold. Be bold and bring back some of the fruit of the land. So you've got to wait until the farmer's not looking and steal some of their stuff, bring it back. Now, it was the season of the first ripe grapes. Thank you, Numbers. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, Sin, Sin uh, to Rehob near Lebo Hamath. They went up to the Negev, and they really went around a lot of places. And then they came to the Wadi Eshkol and cut down there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. So this isn't like a a cluster of grapes. This is like the grapes in this land are like supercharged ultra grapes. These are like you have to carry them with two men. Um, So meaning the land is wonderfully fruitful uh, is really the point. So they come back, and at the end of 40 days... Remember that, 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and to all the congregation of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. That's not a way of saying the rivers are literally milk and honey. It's a way of expressing the prosperity, the bounty and the goodness of the land. And this is its fruit. Yet... The people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. 
Now that means the descendants of Anak are kind of giants, basically. So they, they, we looked tiny and they looked massive. I don't want to fight that guy sort of people. Um, the Amalekites live there in the land of the Negev. The Hittites in the, at the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. So the people basically are saying, hey, it's lovely, but I'm not going to lead the charge to try and take down these enormous kind of, I mean, picture like Luke, an army of Luke. Uh, uh, and you'll kind of get an idea uh, of, of what we're talking about. Uh, and then the grasshoppers coming against. Um, but Caleb, so we get a kind of the voice of dissent from among the spies. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the Israelites, did I make Martha cry? Oh dear. Um, so they brought to the Israelites uh, an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great size. So now we, we, we didn't just see some big people. They were all massive. They were all giants. And we look like grasshoppers by comparison. Uh, so... Chapter 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Well, both aren't good options. Um, Why is it that the Lord is bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. (laughs) Because that's the best of all available options. I mean, it's not very creative, is it? Go somewhere else. (laughs) There are other options in the world that you could go to. Anyway, um, go back to Egypt. But it epitomizes the the sin of kind of... uh, What's it called when you forget to look backwards? Lack of hindsight, I guess, of forgetting. Actually, God rescued us from a really awful, 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 awful situation where Pharaoh was gently but firmly exterminating us as a people. Let's go back there. That sounds great. Um, So Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. They've done that a lot so far, and they'll do it a lot again. Before the assembly of the congregation of the Israelites, and Joshua, son of Caleb, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the Israelites, the land that we went through as spies is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land. In other words, it's not about whether you're a grasshopper compared to the... Is there a children's song that does that? I may be a grasshopper. Oh, I'm not a grasshopper. I'm a giant in the Lord. I think that's a Mike Burns song or something. Um, Anyway... Uh, It doesn't matter how big you are, how big they are. The point is, if God's going to lead us there, he'll lead us there. I mean, look at what he's done already. He brought us out of Egypt. When's that happened before? Like, that's so improbable. We were a weak people, but God brought us out of Egypt. Um, So they say, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us in. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are no more than bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But the whole congregation threatened to stone them. (laughs) So things things are not looking good. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. In other words, I'm done with a lot of them. Moses and Aaron, let's start again with you two. Have you heard that before? Do you remember that? Do you remember this happening before at Mount Sinai? When, uh. <laughs> At least you're going to remember what we were talking about. No, it's all right. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> at least there's no Greek in this sermon. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, do you remember before? And, and Moses is up getting the, the law of God. And he's up there for 40 days. 40 days? And down in the camp, Aaron and the people are like, he seems to have been gone a long time. 
We need a god. Let's make a god. Let's make a calf. That calf will be our god. And they get all their gold and they make it into a calf and they worship it and they um, indulge in revelry, which involves all the things that you think it shouldn't. Um, and, um, and, and, and God says, right, that's it. I'm going to destroy this people. I'm going to start again, Moses, with you. And then Moses says, no, 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 God, 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 and really the thing is God's egging him on. Like God doesn't want to destroy the people. He wants a leader who will fight for the people. That's, that's what he wants. So, um, so, so Moses is like, hold your horses. Let's, let's reconsider. Think about what the Egyptians would say if you brought the people out with a strong and outstretched hand only to smite them in the wilderness. It wouldn't look good for your PR, would it? Um, and, and people would say you couldn't bring them into the land. So, so Moses appeals to him, and God shows him something of his identity. And he says, listen, let me tell you who I am, Moses. Let me tell you who I am. I'm the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, yet not acquitting the guilty, but punishing the sin of the guilty to the third and fourth generation and showing love to thousands of those who love me. And I mixed up the order, but you get the point. So now, come back to the present day. We're in the book of Numbers. The people have just rejected God outright. So we want to go back to Egypt. We wish we'd never met God. We wish our lives had never been impacted by God. We wish we were still slaves to all that rubbish that was destroying our lives before we became followers of the Lord. Um, And God says the same thing again. I'm going to destroy them. Um, And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. (laughs) We're coming back to the same old arguments. God, think of your PR, and they'll tell um, the inhabitants of this land, they've heard that you, O Lord, are in the... Uh, anyway, you get the point. Um, so don't do that, and don't, don't kill them. But also he says this, Now, therefore, this is in verse 17, Let the power of the Lord be great in the way that you promised when you spoke, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Forgive the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've pardoned this people from Egypt, even until now. Do you see what's happening? It's the same conversation coming back. But this time, last time God said to him, I am gracious and compassionate. This time, Moses knows God enough, well enough, that he can say back to him, Nuh-uh-uh-uh, you are the gracious and compassionate God. I know that your heart is compassion. I know that what you want to do is to lead these people into the land. So God basically then says this, Okay, okay, Moses, you win. I will do it. I'll bring the people into the land. I'll bring them in and I'll, I'll forgive them. But... None of the ones who are alive today will see it. So I'm going to do it, but I'll do it in 40 years. I'll give them time to die out. (laughs) Now, that's um, the kind of mixture. And really, I think it's that balance that brings us to something of the the issue of God (laughs) in the book of Numbers. It's kind of this, uh, the phrase from Romans 11 comes back, consider the kindness and the severity of God. And you can't read numbers without seeing both things. On the one hand, through every trial, through every problem that the people have, God never stops giving them manna the next morning. Isn't that funny? He he never stops being gracious to them. He never stops leading them with the intention of getting to them into the land. He never does. His presence stays on the tabernacle. I mean, a couple of times he's like, I'm going on holiday, <laughs> I'll be back. But, um, but, but his presence stays with them through it all. And that's the kindness of God, right? But then there's also this other bit that we have to face, which is the severity of God. And so I want to spend just a little while, just a few minutes, and then we'll talk about one more story. I want to talk about some of my problems with the book of Numbers for a minute. Is that Okay. Because um, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of you will have uh, similar problems to me um, with the book of Numbers. My main problem with the book of Numbers isn't the people of Israel. My main problem with the book of Numbers is how God gets angry a lot. Now, I know that he's... I know. I hope you can hear my, my heart in this. I know that he's allowed to. I know that human sin, they're breaking the covenant with God. Do you know what I mean? But nonetheless, 
it's a, there's some difficult passages here in terms of our understanding of God, particularly if you think Jesus comes and just shows us a God who is completely love and everything, and so he's never, never wrathful uh, or whatever. So uh, there's a number of places in the book where God seems quite mean, like the bit that we just talked about, where God wants to destroy seemingly his whole people, or like um, chapter 5, where God's giving them advice on what to do on the road, and there's this weird passage about adultery. Does anyone remember reading this? And, And it says, if a man accuses a woman of adultery... Um, and he's jealous and kind of suspects her, then you have to take the woman to the priest, and she has to basically drink this kind of dirt liquid from the floor. And then if she's guilty, it'll explode her gut. (laughs) And if she's not, it's fine, they can go home. The man doesn't have to apologize. And it's like, hold on a second. What's What's going on here? This kind of seems kind of arbitrary. It seems kind of mean. It seems kind of male preference let's say there's not a same test the other way around do you know what i mean um so that's kind of difficult um secondly uh or not secondly probably thirdly or fourthly by now there's a moment where the sons of Korah um want to be priest instead of aaron and they're like oh aaron you think you're all that yeah, high priest god called us all holy he said to everyone you're my holy people that means i should get to do your job um, and Aaron is like, well, have a go uh, and see, we'll see what happens. So they bring fire in these little pots to the tabernacle and God incinerates them, 250 of them. He incinerates them. At the same time, there's another leadership challenge happening in the camp. And those people gather around their houses or in their houses with their wives and their kids. And, and Moses says, hey, hey, um, these men have sinned against God. If they die a natural death you'll know that I'm not the Lord's prophet. But if they die a supernatural death, you'll, you'll know pretty clearly that, that God's chosen me. And the ground opens up and swallows them, all their stuff, and their kids. Now, <laughs> it's an old story, but if that actually happened, that's pretty tricky, isn't it? It is, and I'm not going to make it untricky for you, uh, but it is tricky. There's another bit where a guy's picking up sticks on a Sabbath. It's not much of an infraction. I've done bigger infractions of the law than that at least twice. (laughs) Has anyone here ever broken the Sabbath? (laughs) I mean, come on. Um, And the guy is picking up a few sticks, presumably to make a little fire for him or his family or whatever. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, maybe he was doing a trade or something. I don't know. Either way, Moses is like, the the people take him to Moses, and Moses says, "Well, well, let's wait and see what God says to do with him. And God says, take him outside the camp and stone him till he's dead. So they throw rocks at this guy until his skin breaks, his bone breaks, his organs hemorrhage, and he bleeds out. Ah, okay. (laughs) Okay, welcome to the Torah. Yay. There's another bit where Moses is frustrated. And Moses is particularly frustrated in this moment because he's been leading these people for nearly 40 years now, and he's getting the same old rubbish every single day for that time like these seven stories are given to us but there was probably way more times uh, where the people got frustrated and the people demand water um, again they're like well, there's no water uh, uh, and god says speak to the rock and the rock will give them water um, so moses takes his staff and smacks the rock twice which isn't what god said is it god said speak Moses hit it because he hit it once before um, in a previous story. So he hits the rock twice and says, shall we bring water out of this rock for you, Israel? Meaning, is it mine and Aaron's job to feed you water? And of course it wasn't. It was God's job and he should have spoken to the rock. But nonetheless, he does it. One little mistake. One little leadership mistake in a really quite impressive run. And God says to him, Moses, you're cool, but you're not coming into the land. You are going to die in the wilderness too because you sinned against me and you didn't obey my voice. One mistake. Like that feels overly harsh. Do you know what I mean? This guy has done all the legwork. (laughs) I mean, God did some as well, but Moses has done a lot of the legwork up until this point. Uh, There's another part. (laughs) You'll be pleased to hear. Uh, Besides the bit where God sends snakes among the people to kill loads of them, which we'll come to in a minute, uh, or maybe I'll just finish at 12, just leaving all these questions hanging. Um, Uh, there's another bit where the the people are in Moab, which Nigel's going to talk about this next week, so I'm not going to resolve this one. I'll I'll just set up the problem for this. Um, 
where the people are in Moab. Um, and do you remember Balaam comes and he speaks, he tries to speak curses over the people and he speaks blessings instead. And then the Moabites have a better idea of how to um, ruin the people of Israel and it's sex. So they're like, hey, let's send our women in um, and they can seduce the guys and get them to worship our gods and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so there's this episode where the people of Israel um, kind of learn to worship false gods um, and are sleeping with uh, these other uh, women who aren't Israelites and they're leading them in the worship of this false god um, and after a little while after this so, so that led to a curse a whole bunch of them died like thousands of them thousands of the Israelites died um, and Phineas uh, stopped the plague by stabbing a guy and a girl through while they were um, in, in the special act as it were um, or not in this case very special uh, very uh, uh, Let's move on. Uh, So anyway, Phineas, one of the priestly family, has stopped the plague. But then 10 chapters later, God comes back and says, avenge yourself on the Midianites, Moses. Your last job is to avenge yourselves on the Midianites, the Moabites. They seem to be the same people. I get a bit confused, but it seems to mention them both kind of in the same context. So Moses says to his guys... And he sees that some of them have kept their wives, kept their women from from Moab. So they they go out, they kill a lot of the guys, they destroy the town, but a lot of them keep the women alive. And Moses comes along and he sees these guys with these girls and he says, how come you kept the women alive? What, what, What are you doing keeping these women alive? If any of these women have slept with a guy, they need to die. But if they're virgins, you can keep them for yourselves. I don't know which part of the sentence I hate more. <laughs> now, do you, do you see my problem? I'm going to offer a few potential solutions. They're not they're, uh, Solutions is too simplistic a word, but a few kind of pointers for us as we read difficult texts like this in the Bible. Um, and they don't all completely help. Numbers will still be difficult, and that's because it wants to be difficult. It intends to be difficult. It intends to grate with us a little bit. And we're going to think about why as well. Firstly, pay attention to the detail. Pay attention to the detail of the text. In that last story I mentioned, God said to Moses, avenge yourself on the Midianites. God never said, it, never, it doesn't record God saying, So that means kill all the women. Don't send them away. Murder them. Execute them. Kill all the women who slept with a man. Keep the ones who haven't. God doesn't say that. Moses does. It's just a little detail in the text. I don't know if it's supposed to be a clue or if if, if that's God, if that's Moses overstepping it or if it's kind of a sign that sometimes our zeal pushes us a bit too far. I don't know. But it doesn't solve the problem because in other places, God says, wipe out everyone. (laughs) Um, But here, it doesn't say that. Okay, that's one thing. Secondly, in a couple of the places where Israel totally decimates a nation in numbers and they wipe out everyone and destroy the towns, Israel didn't declare war. (laughs) The other people did. Does that make sense? So Israel comes to the people, offers terms of peace, um, and says, actually, we just want to use, we just want to walk through. We're not even going to eat your food. We're not even going to drink your drink. We'll keep to the main road. We won't disturb you. You'll barely notice us. We'll be gone by the evening. We won't make any noise. We'll be quiet by 10. Like, just let us through. Um, And the people come out, uh, the people of these other nations come out in force and attack Israel. And so the people of Israel defend themselves, and a lot of people get killed. So, So pay attention to the detail. It's not always them who are the aggravators. Third thing, there's this thing in Numbers and in the Torah as a whole where the people that God wants to settle his land have to be in a place where they can really live out what God's standard looks like, right? They've got to be because they're modeling a holy God to an unholy world. And so they have to be holy. So there's this sense all the way through that if you behave in a way that is unholy, in a way that doesn't model God, and you don't repent and you don't turn back to him, that you have to go. (laughs) Like you can't be a part of that people. You can't be a part of that people of faith because you've acted acted outside of faith in God. So yeah, it sounds harsh, but it's saying actually the sin in our lives, these stories are there. And rather than left out, rather than it would have been much easier for the author of Numbers to have left them out. They didn't. 
They included them because it's saying to us, your sin really matters if you want to live for God in the world. The way we live our lives, even the incidental choices that we make, um, like the, the guy who picks up sticks on the Sabbath day, might have seemed like no big deal to him. But God's like, actually, if you want to be my people, those little habits, those little, oh, God doesn't really care about that things in your life. Uh-huh, he really does. And it really matters that we live as a people who are pure before God. So the stories are there as an example. Um, in fact, they're picked up in the New Testament. Oh, uh, no, let's come back to that. Um, we've seen this exact thing this week in our society played out. And do you remember that there's, um, well, I mean, there's, I think there's been some more allegations now. Uh, so it kind of made a bit clearer. But do you remember the, was it the defense secretary? Um, yeah. And there was that story where maybe 50, 20 years ago or something, 15 years ago, he put his hand on a colleague, journalist, the point is, put his hand on a girl's leg unsolicited, uh, female journalist, and she came out and said it, and he quit. Do you remember this? Now, there's been more allegations since, but the point is, that's the story as it was presented to us. And then there was this kind of, this kind of confusion that I had as well, and I was like, wait, 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 wait. He put his hand on a girl's leg 15 years ago. That doesn't seem like, and this is just honest, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Do you know what I mean? No. <laughs> yeah, if we're playing that game. No. Um, <laughs> then, um, Melissa and I were watching Have I Got News For You on Friday evening, I think it was. Did anyone else see this? And Joe Brand was hosting it. And the guys were having this conversation. It was her as the host and these four men on her panel. And, and one of the guys said, you know, like exactly that. It's like, I mean, how, how, how obsessive are we being about this? It was a long time ago. It was nothing. It was a small thing. And Joe Brand just shot him down. Do you remember? Did anyone else watch this? And, it was, and she was like, actually, it's not a little thing. If you assume that kind of space on someone else's leg that's not yours, and it's not just once, this happens over and over and over and over again to women, and anything is too much. Anything is too much. And I think that story is kind of a symbolism of the severity of God in numbers, in the sense that these things don't seem like a lot, but they're a symptom of a much bigger problem, right? That actually any kind of sexual abuse is too much sexual abuse. In God's eyes, any kind of sin in our lives is too much. There's not such a thing as just live with it and be done with it. Besides, all the people that God kills in the wilderness were going to die anyway because he'd said he'd wipe them out over 40 years. So, you know, come on. If it's a snake now or uh, waiting it out, either way. Um, <laughs> How long have we got? Oh, gosh, I've talked for a long time. Yeah. Do I need to stop soon? Let's do one more quick bit. Um, <laughs> and this will bring us to Jesus, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, <laughs> can you go to chapter 21. So they've complained once more, and I mentioned this earlier. Um, chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But, but the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They've said that several times. Uh, For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Um, Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. The word poisonous is fiery, uh, fiery serpents. Now, do you remember the first complaint? What happened? The the Lord sent fire. Oh, interesting. So this is the first and the seventh. They've got this mirrored kind of punishment of this fire coming from God. Um, Sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. Uh, And so the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, make a poisonous serpent, and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze or copper and put it on a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person 
would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Consider the kindness and the severity of God. <laughs> so they complain. He sends snakes, and the snakes are biting the people. And Moses says, God, I want, I want, I want you to save these people from these snakes, please. And God says, okay, now... This is where the story gets very strange, okay? And embrace the strange. Embrace, embrace the weirdness of this story. God said to Moses, so make a snake out of metal, stick it on a pole. That's my solution. Anyone else find that strange? What's the problem? So what's the solution? <laughs> Do you see that's weird? God's not like, it's okay, I'll kill the snakes. He could have done that. Okay, I'll wipe out the snakes. But instead, I'm going to give you this symbol that's at the same time a symbol of the problem and the solution. It's at the same time a symbol of the judgment and the way that you're going to be free from the judgment. Can you see how I might get to Jesus from this? <laughs> it's not, not too tricksy because Jesus does it for me. In John 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And he could have said anything to Nicodemus. He could have raised any number of, of kind of examples from the Old Testament. But he says, hey, if you want to understand me, if you want to understand me, remember the book of Numbers where God sent the snakes. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Do you remember? So that anyone who looks to him will not perish. And then he says that phrase that we quote all the time. Well, we kind of stop now because we're bored of it. But John 3, 16. <laughs> we're not bored of it. I saw a shocked face from Martha over there. Heresy. Um, no, quite right. Um, <laughs> um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. And Jesus says, if you want to understand me, Understand this moment from the book of Numbers where God's anger is turned into a way of salvation. And so Jesus gave us a picture of what his death looked like from the strangest place in the Bible. <laughs> like, basically, he could have just said, I'm like the lamb who gets chopped and the sins forgiven. Like, that would have been a much easier explanation to Nicodemus of what he was like. Or I'm like Moses leading the people out of slavery. Or I'm like whatever. But no, I'm like the copper serpent on a stick. That's, that's how to understand my life. But it all makes so much sense, doesn't it, on the cross? when this act of incredible judgment on sin also is the way that we get saved from judgment for sin. Do you see? And this supreme act of death becomes an act of life. And this incredible moment of, of awful, this awful picture of just the obsceneness of human evil becomes the way that we get saved from it. Consider the kindness and the severity of God.